ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turbal land. Today, cutting through the proverbial with salt reduction. We can all benefit in terms of our blood pressure, whether it's normal or high. We'll fly a kite about a different way of buying drugs for Australia, which actually might increase access for some products and save money at the same time. And feeling dissatisfied with the way you look is a pretty familiar experience for most of us. After all, we live in a society that tells us that how we look is important at almost every turn, and yet most of us are not symmetrical supermodels. But for some people, this self-criticism can become an obsession that bleeds into all areas of their life. It can be expensive if people seek surgery to correct these perceived imperfections. It can affect quality of life and relationships, and it can be associated with eating disorders that harm people's physical health. It's a condition with a name, Body Dysmorphic Disorder, or BDD. For Stacey, the obsession with her perceived flaws started after a difficult time in her preteen years and flared up after traumatic experiences in her teens and young adulthood. But it still took 16 years from when she first had symptoms to when she got a diagnosis. The things that started to develop, the behaviours, the way that I would look in the mirror for what seemed like an eternity, scanning my face, looking for perceived imperfections. Until I got diagnosed, I didn't know what this was and I just thought it was normal. Until you start talking to other people and you realise that maybe this isn't normal. I don't know, I feel like I look at other women and yes, they cared about it, but just not giving it as much time and they seemed more carefree and I never felt carefree. Now looking back, I can see that it affected everything, like it affects every single area of your life. So your personal relationships, work, just everything, it kind of like permeates all areas of your life in a way that what I keep saying is I feel like I'm never able to do things the way that I would like to do them. So in some ways, it can completely hold me back. I'll completely avoid doing certain things, say, go to the beach. So I've lived in Australia for nine years, and I think I could count on my one hand how many times I've been to the beach. Because for me, going to the beach wearing a bikini is very distressing. And then with personal relationships, like dating isn't very easy because when you're worried about how you look and how your body looks, it just basically gets in the way of a lot of things, of getting closer to someone. And another part of body dysmorphic disorder is comparison. So for me with females, when I'm around other women, what I think are especially attractive, I will compare myself. So I'll compare my body shape to that person or a facial feature or my hair. Like someone that's taller than me, I'm never going to be taller, but I will unfairly compare myself to that person if Mm. that makes sense Mm. but even when I was diagnosed what typically happens is it's difficult to really feel comfortable with the diagnosis because you've thought that you're basically ugly up till that point there's something wrong with you that when somebody says it's not that it's because you have this condition it just takes time to actually believe that 11 years later and therapy here in Melbourne and yeah in the past year it started to become something that I'm believing the diagnosis but it's taken a long time. The main thing that I think has helped me is 
uh, had group therapy at the start of the year. So I met eight other people who were all diagnosed with BDD and we actually had six weeks of group therapy together. And that was massive because before that, I had actually never met anyone that had body dysmorphic disorder. So being able to meet other people and see that they weren't hideously ugly made me realise that this is obviously a psychological disorder. It is still something that I talk to people about openly now in the past year since I've been in therapy, but not many people truly understand what it is. They've heard about it, but they don't know really what it is. As far as mental disorders go, body dysmorphic disorder is relatively common. At least 2% of the population worldwide has it, but experts say it's under-recognised. Susan Russell, a cognitive neuropsychologist at Swinburne University, is trying to change that. After 20 years of studying body image and eating disorders, she's spearheaded a survey that aims to put better numbers around BDD in Australia. And she joins me now. Hi, Susan. Hello. So we're hearing Stacey speaking there about things like not feeling comfortable in a bikini on a beach, which honestly sounds extremely familiar. What takes body dysmorphic disorder out of that sort of maybe feeling self-conscious into something that's really disrupting someone's life? For people with BDD, the the thought process and that little voice in your head just never goes away. Um, and then when they look in the mirror, they have these um, uh, beliefs and also perceptions Uh, and that's something that's quite different from people in the healthy population Uh, we often refer to BDD as an imagined ugliness so they when they look in the mirror they see these defects or deformities or ugliness um, which just aren't there and as Stacey referred to really articulately you know she was able to meet with eight other people this year in group therapy and see that their deficits weren't there or see that these imagined problems weren't there. That's what takes it to this different level for people with BDD. And as I referred to, the constant thought about it, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter, you know, where they are in their lives. There's this constant little voice in their head telling them that they're ugly and talking to them about their their imagined ugliness. What causes it? We are pretty certain that the people have some visual problems. They don't see the world the, the way that you and I see the world. When we look at the world, if you don't have BDD, we know that the world is made up of all of these different features in the world and we put them together in a big picture in our head. Unfortunately, what seems to be happening for people with BDD is they get very distracted by the small features, the little parts of their environment, and they find it more difficult to put things together in a holistic picture. Um, And that is especially true for the way that they look at their body, but we've we've also got some data showing that they, they do that in the everyday world when they're looking at scenes and things. So we think it's a visual problem, but there's also uh, attached to that is some issues with um, emotions and emotion regulation and um, uh, and we have shown um, also trauma and bullying um, can be particularly influential in terms of those problems with emotion regulation. So what are the numbers around it? Because I said 2% at, uh, when I mentioned it before, but the research that you're doing is indicating that it could be a lot bigger than that. 
a lot, lot bigger. Yeah, so when, when I first started doing this, you know, when we're talking about 2%, 2% is actually larger than any other mental health condition. So when we're talking about schizophrenia or anxiety or um, OCD, we talk about a 1% prevalence for these particular disorders. So the fact that we're already at 2% is double what most serious mental health disorders are. But then in the last few years, we're actually showing it's considerably higher. Um, there was a recent um, study done in teenagers, which was suggesting it was up to 12%. And some of the work that we've been um, doing in our initial um, uh, data collection for our survey is again confirming 12% in adults, which just seems so astronomically high. But also not unexpected. Um, we know that people with BDD are very ashamed of talking about their symptoms and often live um, with the disorder for very, very many years um, secretly. Um, we have done quite a lot of work showing that people can live with their symptoms for up to 20 years before they talk to any mental health professional about them. So this secrecy and also the lack of public understanding about BDD doesn't lead, leads us to perhaps expect that the data might show that these prevalences are higher than we were initially thinking. What's the cost to someone of living with this untreated for such a long time? Absolutely astronomical. Um, as we heard from Stacey, being, uh, engaging in relationships, engaging with other family members, even people that, you know, that love you and support you, um, uh, going out to work, um, engaging in education, socialising is a really big one. Most people with BDD have some form of social anxiety and would hate to be around other people because they think that people are looking at them. So a train journey is particularly particularly horrific for some people with BDD. They just can't think, put their head through going on, you know, public transport or being in crowded places or, as we referred to earlier, going to the beach. So the quality of life is really quite poor for people with BDD. And look, I've, I've worked in mental health for over 20 years now on lots of different diagnostic conditions. And really, people with BDD strike me as some of the most um, uh, poor quality of life that I've seen. What are the interventions we're looking at then, um, just briefly, at the individual level, but perhaps also at a societal level? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been working on, um, and there's international evidence to show that it works, is as Stacey referred to therapy, which is a, a, a usually a cognitive behaviour therapy, um, where we um, address people's obsessions, address people's ruminations, get people more comfortable looking at themselves with them in, in the mirror. Um, and we really need to start to talk about our bodies more and understand that it's okay if you, if, well, it's, it's obviously okay to talk about it and it's okay to go and see your GP about poor body image and body image distress. Indeed. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks, Tegan. Professor Susan Russell is a cognitive neuropsychologist and professorial research fellow at Swinburne Centre for Mental Health. If you want, you can take the survey at www.nationalbodyimagesurvey.com and you're with The Health Report. 
Just as we head into what for most of us will be a high salt Christmas, a new study has shown that pretty much anyone can benefit from salt reduction in terms of their blood pressure, which to remind you, next to smoking, is probably the most toxic risk factor for heart attacks, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, strokes, dementia and kidney damage. Associate Professor Deepak Gupta at Vanderbilt University in Nashville was the lead researcher. Oh, my pleasure. So what was the confusion before you did this study? It's well known that sodium relates to blood pressure. I think we didn't quite understand the impact of it across broader populations, particularly those that already have high blood pressure and are already taking medications for lowering blood pressure, which we included in our study. So was the idea that if you're already on blood pressure medications, reducing your sodium didn't make much difference? That's right. We found about a six to seven millimeter systolic reduction, whether you were on medications or not. We should also just define this very confusing thing that sometimes in the back of the packet you'll see sodium and sometimes you'll see salt. Our salt intake, because it's sodium chloride, looks higher than our sodium intake should be. So just dissect that for us before we get going so we understand what the story is. Table salt is sodium chloride, as you said. And that contains five grams in one teaspoon. So one teaspoon of table salt is five grams. But if you just isolate the sodium component of that, that's 2,300 milligrams of sodium in one teaspoon of table salt. And so what we're focusing on is the sodium component of that. And just to put it in Australian context, five grams of salt is considered the top of the recommended intake on a daily basis and presumably similar to the United States. Correct. For salt, it's 5 grams. For sodium, it's 2,300 milligrams. So this was a study of all comers in a sense. Yeah, we tried to include a broad population. We included middle-aged to elderly individuals. We included people with normal blood pressure. We included people with high blood pressure. And those people with high blood pressure, we included those that had treatment for it and were under control, as well as those that had treatment and were not under control, as well as those that were completely untreated. Now, you divided them into three groups. One was their usual diet, one was a high-sodium diet, and then they followed that with a low-sodium diet. Why did you put them on a high-sodium diet? Isn't most people's normal diet pretty high anyway? That's a great question. We wanted to understand what if you push above and beyond what an individual's usual diet is. And the practical reason for that is, is that most people, their dietary sodium varies from day to day and sometimes from meal to meal. So we wanted to see what happened if we pushed above that. And it was just for a week? Correct. I think it's practically important for patients to know that these changes in their dietary sodium intake can actually happen rapidly and you don't have to wait a month or two months or three months to see the effect. So what did you find? The main finding that we had was that the vast majority of individuals saw a reduction in their systolic blood pressure with reducing their dietary sodium. And that, again, did not matter whether you started out with normal blood pressure high blood pressure taking medications, high blood pressure not taking medications, or high blood pressure and uncontrolled. And it was the same sort of reduction that you'd get with a blood pressure pill. Correct. So what does that actually then mean for people? Because in Australia, there's all this talk, well, we're in a hot country, people are going to get faint if they reduce their salt. We did not see that there were more adverse events or symptoms with being on the low-sodium diet compared to the high-sodium diet. And the things that you described of seeing weakness, lethargy, potentially feeling tired, that occurred in about 1% to 2% of individuals, so it was pretty uncommon. And those symptoms were also seen in some of the patients taking high-sodium diet. And then in terms of the overall public health impact, 
you know, we usually translate the blood pressure reduction into terms of clinical outcomes. And so a six millimeter reduction in systolic blood pressure typically translates into about a 10 to 15% reduction in what we call hard clinical events like heart attacks, strokes, vascular mortality. So it's really meaningful. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a really meaningful impact to reduce your blood pressure by six millimeters systolic. Without having to take a drug. Yeah. You know, the challenge there is, is that some people will say, it's hard for me to stick with a low sodium diet for a long period of time. It's easy for me to take a medication. We didn't actually see that any of the medications classes themselves took care of the salt sensitivity. That reduction in blood pressure with reducing your dietary sodium occurred regardless of what class of medications you're on. So you really have to do both if you want to lower your blood pressure. I should have asked you this earlier. I mean, how vicious was the reduction in sodium? What we designed for the low-sodium diet was very low. It was 500 milligrams. But we did that knowing that most people may not be adherent with that. And so what we ended up with was around 1,300 milligrams, which is just below the American Heart Association recommendation for people with hypertension. It's 1,500 milligrams. Have you followed people through to see whether they can maintain it? Our study was not designed to understand the long-term sustainability of the diets, but we tried to make it as practical as possible. So the low-sodium diets, while they were standardized across the two cities where participants were enrolled, they were all things that were available in the grocery store or online retailers. There wasn't any special prep to it, things that were readily available. Well, Deepak Gupta, I wish you a low-sodium Christmas. I appreciate it and that for others as well. Thanks very much for coming on. Okay, thanks so much for your time. Deepak Gupta is Associate Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And Norman, this actually relates to a story we ran a few months ago on an under-recognised cause of high blood pressure called primary aldosteronism. Yep, it's easy to test for but not often looked for and it makes people highly sensitive to salt and far more vulnerable to heart and kidney damage for any given level of blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. And one person who was listening when we did that story was Pam. She took herself off to her doctor to ask them to test her for it. And I've been chatting to her about what happened next. Last year, I was keenly listening, as I always do, to the health report. And Norman was interviewing Dr. June Young, who was talking about something I'd never heard of before, primary allosterianism, and pointed out that was vastly underdiagnosed and that there are a few key risk factors in association with high blood pressure that people should be aware of and get checked out. And I followed that advice because only six months before, my blood pressure had started to go up from a very low level to you know a moderate level and I was alarmed. And it wasn't high enough for any doctor to be at all concerned. But for me, it was high, much higher than I'm used to running. And because I had some of the other risk factors, I pursued the diagnosis. Are you happy to talk about what the other risk factors might be? Some of them are a little bit kind of loose in terms of, you know, general anxiety. And I've never been an anxious person before. But the key one was in a workup to look at some other health issue, they found adrenal incidentaloma, which is a word for, you know, finding a, a small tumour on the adrenal gland that um, doesn't seem to be causing any problem. But it might have been. Yes, yes. With PAE, primary aldosteronism, the sort of two causes, one is an adrenal tumour that's causing way too much of the hormone aldosterone, and the other is both adrenals might be affected with just lots of cells producing lots. So 
it's one of the critical things to get sorted because if you've just got a tumour and it's one-sided, then you can have that tumour removed and you're cured for life, basically. Whereas if it's both adrenal glands are effective, then you just need to take medication. This whole disorder, PA, it was thought to be quite rare. And now, you know, they know that it's actually not rare. It's one in 17 adults in the population have got this disorder. But less than 1% of people with it have been ever diagnosed. You're not your own doctor, but when you're talking to your doctors, what do they sort of tell you would have happened to you if you hadn't been quick off the mark and had this looked at? Yeah, so this is really critical because not only does, you know, high blood pressure cause a a raft of problems, but even if the blood pressure is reasonably well controlled, but the background aldosterone isn't, that causes other problems. So that can affect the heart independently, it can affect the kidneys, it can cause stroke. So it's you know, really vitally important that people do get diagnosed so they don't have these long-term health outcomes. So what was going through your mind at that moment? It was more like, here we go again, here's another little rare disorder to add to my list. Oh, have you got a couple? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I have acromegaly, which is caused by a pituitary tumour, and I'm pretty sure I got that scene too because I'd heard Norman talk about that. <laughs> Really seriously. <laughs> uh, your personal family doctor, Dr. Norman Swan. That's right. <laughs> Coming back to this sort of particular ailment, what was the intervention for you for the PA? So I've chosen just to go down the medical route. So I'm just taking a drug that's a, a diuretic, but it has a very strong effect on suppressing the aldosterone you know it's very effective and the research shows that if you do use it appropriately then your risk of any long-term damage is you know almost brought back to zero that's pam there norman i hope you're bulk billing her for all this (laughs) medical advice if only she knew that all i know about is children (laughs) yeah thanks pam who's now representing the issue at a global level indeed Now, every so often in the health report, apart from saving lives, we like to fly a kite to get some debate going in areas which might be ripe for reform. One such may be that Australia is inefficient in the way, I'm talking about economically inefficient, in the way we subsidise drugs. We allow similar drugs onto the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, the PBS, at a certain price level as long as they meet effectiveness requirements. And this could be inefficient because there's little, if any, price competition. Whereas what we could do is what an organisation called Pharmac in New Zealand does and conduct a competitive tender to supply the national market. That's what Professor Philip Clark thinks we should consider. Philip's a health economist, formerly of the University of Melbourne, now based at Oxford. Every so often, I think governments really need to think about their healthcare systems in a sort of fundamental way, particularly because the number of products and healthcare technologies is increasing all the time. And there's always a question about how we can afford it. Now, New Zealand, about 20 years ago, undertook a very different path where they created an independent authority to effectively manage their budget when it comes to pharmaceuticals and purchasing of other devices, including devices to improve the management of diabetes care. And I really think it's worth considering whether there are elements that you could then adopt in Australia. I mean, one of the criticisms of Pharmac in New Zealand is that 
drug companies and device companies have just taken their bat and ball and gone home because they're not interested in driving the prices down to the lowest common denominator. And therefore, patients have reduced choice compared to Australia. Well, I think there is perhaps more limited choice, but actually on some technologies, actually there are products that are listed in New Zealand that aren't available in Australia. And a good example of that is insulin pumps, which are changing the sort of management, particularly for those with type 1 diabetes. Now, in Australia, we do have a subsidisation program for those under the age of 21, and there is some subsidisation with those with private health insurance, but in general, they're not covered. In New Zealand, they have a limited choice. They only have a choice of two different types of pumps compared with, I think, around six in Australia. But the eligibility is across the board, although there are, of course, clinical criteria patients have to have to satisfy. So I think there is an example where there's a more limited choice, but because they have a tendering process that introduces competition, then they are able to pay less for those products and they're actually able to expand the eligibility. And that's the sort of trade-off I think Australia should start to think about Do we want to potentially have a little less choice when it comes to some of these products, but actually being able to afford more products and the existing products, being able to make them available to more people? Don't we already tender in Australia? I know the Grattan Institute a few years ago looked at the process that state governments use for purchasing drugs and devices, and they reckoned that if the Commonwealth were to adopt that approach, we would save literally billions of dollars and the price of devices would come down to much more internationally equivalent levels, whereas now some of our devices are much more expensive than overseas. So we already tender to some extent, don't we? That's true. And very much at a state level, at a Commonwealth level, there is some limiting tendering and there is actually currently a call for a tendering process around diabetes products, including blood glucose monitoring products. But I think what's perhaps different with Pharmac is that they actually manage a budget. And so one of the critical things that happens with Pharmac is if they can make savings through the tendering process, they can actually then look to list, as it were, new products because they're managing a budget. Whereas in Australia, what I think tends to happen with these processes is that money basically goes back into consolidated revenue. Economists might call this sort of the hypothecation of the savings that you achieve from tendering back into the sort of healthcare system. Now, why might you do that? Well, it does, of course, reduce your flexibility as a government on where you can spend the savings, but it does mean you drive a greater efficiency because there's this very clear trade-off where if you can make savings on one set of products, you can then perhaps invest in listing new products, whereas In Australia, the tendering is quite divorced from perhaps the listing of new products. So how would it work in Australia? We've got a group called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. They study health economics, the economic value of products versus their benefits, and also behind the scenes negotiate what they hope are competitive prices for drugs. And then they're listed for subsidised version of the drug. How would it change in your mind? The major element of evaluating the drugs for cost effectiveness is the same in both countries. Perhaps what's different is the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee in Australia only makes recommendations to the minister. They're not managing a budget. There is much less use of formal tendering processes. So we tend to perhaps accept all products within a class, which means that not making choices between products, you'll tend to pay more for those products. How does it work with Pharmac and the really expensive new particular anti-cancer drugs, which can cost $100,000 a year. And because they control the market, the drug companies are pretty loath to negotiate too far down. 
obviously in the tendering process, if there's only one product within a class, you're going to, I mean, obviously either going to have to negotiate. I think what's also critical in New Zealand is they spend significantly less, maybe a, a third less than Australia does on its pharmaceuticals. And I think you have to separate out the process of tendering from the amount of money that you make available. And of course, a tendering system where there's more money available, potentially you can afford many more products, including some of these cancer drugs. But often, where you have more than one product, if you're prepared to make a choice between those products on the basis of a pharmaceutical company that gives you a better deal, I think you're likely to overall to pay less. And from a pharmaceutical company's point of view, one thing that does make a country like New Zealand attractive, of course, is that you can supply the whole of the country through a tendering process. So it's potentially efficient from a pharmaceutical company's point of view, as opposed to having individual sort of competition once the drug has entered the market and then come is not sure about the volumes that they will supply. Philip Clark, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Professor Philip Clark, who's Professor of Health Economics at the University of Oxford. Well, that's it for today. Next week, we start our summer season listening. Yes, we've curated some of our favourite shows from the whole year and we'll be playing for them for you over the next few weeks. And don't forget our new podcast, Watch That Rash and send in your questions. That rash at abc.net.au, but I hope you get to catch some rays safely over the summer. And watch that salt. See you next time. I'm Dr. Norman Swan. And I'm Tegan Taylor. And we've got a new show for you called What's That Rash? Norman, I've got this, like a lump. Tegan, please, it's not for you. Kidding! We're answering the big health questions everyone else is asking. Is it just me or is this common? How long should I be napping for? Is it supposed to smell like that? Why is my pee this colour? Ooh, great questions. Can't wait to dig into them. Scratch that itch and find What's That Rash on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.